the National Archives podcast series, Worn Out by War, Disabled Soldiers and Their Pensions, presented by Dr. Carolyn Nielsen. This talk was recorded on the 1st of December 2015 at the National Archives, Q. What I'm going to do today is talk about the different forms of army pension that operated between 1590 and the late 19th century. I'm going to introduce you to the Royal Hospitals of Kilmainham, Chelsea, and also the different types of Chelsea pensioner. So if I could take a quick straw poll, who has heard of a Chelsea pensioner? Quick guess, how many types of Chelsea pensioner are there? Nearly. <laughs> so as an illustration that the Chelsea pensioner system is a lot more complex than it initially appears. So part of what I'm going to talk about today is how the system actually worked and not just how it was supposed to work on paper. I'm also going to introduce you to the Invalid Service, who later become known as the Garrison of the Reserve or the Veterans Battalions from 1806. I'm also going to give you a couple of considerations for your own research, which includes talking about the terminology we use to describe demobilised soldiers, but also the terminology we use to describe pensions and the reason somebody leaves the army. And hopefully this will give you some new ideas of how to navigate your own research into this field. So I've entitled this next slide, Mind Your Language. So as we all know from our historical research, historical terms change meaning. Language changes its meaning drastically over time. This is particularly an issue in the history of disability. Many of the historic terms for people with physical um, and or mental impairments or other health issues are now considered deeply offensive because of the cultural associations that have developed around that word and around particular uh, disorders or impairments. So there are a couple of examples that you most commonly see um, in disability history, um, in cultural history, in cultural sources, in newspapers over time. So one example um, is Mongol, which is sometimes abbreviated to Mong. This now deeply offensive word um, was originally a medical diagnosis in the 19th century and was usually applied to someone with Down syndrome. Other terms include freak, Blinkard, which is someone um, with visual impairment. Cripple, uh, a catch-all term for anyone who had any form of mobility issues. Um, spastic, also uh, related to neurological or mobility issues. Foul is a word you tend to only see in the early modern period, and it relates to venereal disease or an assumption that somebody has a venereal disease. Idiot and cretin are originally medical diagnoses. You tend, idiot you see from the medieval period onwards, cretin um, develops in the 19th century, and they're used to define particular forms of mental impairment and learning disabilities. Dumb is a phrase used to, you might hear the phrase deaf and dumb, and it refers to someone um, who is deaf um, but has speech difficulties or communication difficulties. Limper is a slang term you get in the army to refer to someone who limps. Timber toe is another 18th and 19th century one. It refers to someone who uses a wooden leg. 
Many of these terms were offensive in the past as well. There are examples of particularly foul and idiot being used to insult one's neighbours. We have to be careful of introducing anachronism into our historical research, using our contemporary understandings of the word and applying it to people's use of the word in the past. We can risk introducing ideas or attitudes that were not simply there. By contextualising the words and their historical meaning, it helps us uncover the origins of prejudice towards disabilities. And when we use it to uncover prejudice, it can help empower people today. I'm also going to raise the point of what do we actually mean by the word disability? Disability scholars today very much associate the word with a perception of one's ability to undertake paid employment, one's ability to labour. And this is seen in the work particularly of David Hunter. In the 18th century, disability to be disabled was usually applied to men. It was very heavily gendered, and it referred to a loss of natural power, injury with the limb that had meant it wasn't as strong as it was before. This changes subtly over time. So by the early 19th century, it's beginning to be applied to different disabled groups, including those with learning difficulties and intellectual impairments and also the range of other um, physical and mental impairments I have listed on the board. Even we should consider how we use the word disabled and what we mean by it. And as I go through the talk, I'm going to give a demonstration of what the army could mean by disabled in its pension systems. An issue with language also comes around with what word do we use to describe someone who has left the army? Historians of various use the words discharged soldiers, former soldiers, old soldiers, and veteran. And veteran is the one you see most frequently now. But the language around the military is very, very nuanced and very historically time-specific. Veteran, um, in contemporary English use, means someone who has served in the military or the naval services for an extended period of time, although there is often no set amount of time. In the 18th, from the 18th to the mid-20th century, veteran is an honorific term. It refers exclusively to someone with 20-plus years distinguished service in a particular public office, so you can get a veteran politician. It's usually associated with men of an older age, from the mid-40s onwards, and in the British Army in the 18th and 19th century, it is tied to one's perception of pension rights. This is a term someone else would give you. You wouldn't call yourself a pensioner, and in many uh, a veteran, and in petitions and letters from veterans and their memoirs, and there is a lot of 19th century memoirs from pension soldiers, they don't tend to use the word veteran to apply to themselves. They say, I am an old soldier. And it seems to be the term they preferred using. And you see it in all of the pension documents as well. Not all former soldiers could be veterans in the 18th and 19th centuries, even if they did receive a pension. So we've got to be aware of putting our contemporary language uses into the past. How did one become a pensioner? The Articles of War were legal statements that governed the military's expectations of a soldier 
and a soldier's expectations of his commanders. It was very specific on the moment of discharge. If any soldier shall be sick, wounded, or maimed in our service, he shall be sent out of the camp to some fit place for his recovery, where he shall be provided for by the officer appointed to take care of the sick and wounded soldiers, and his wages or pay shall go on and be duly paid till it does appear that he is no longer serviceable in our army, and then he shall be sent by pass to his country with money to bear the charges of his travel. At that point, when that decision is made, you are no longer serviceable, are unlikely ever to be serviceable, the regular army could let you go. This also means that because the army deducted payments for medical care, most soldiers had a very long period of staying in a hospital. Many of them would come out with depleted wages. So at the moment where they needed their money most, quite frequently they could be in debt. This is why most 18th and 19th century imagers of soldiers include this type of imagery. And for the podcast, it's imagery of um, soldiers begging from an 18th century painting and a 19th century um, etching. In 1789, a report was listed on the City of London which stated that a high percentage of the beggars that were interviewed were former servicemen. And begging was very much associated with former servicemen who had been disabled. But what provisions were there before the establishment of the Royal Hospital of Chelsea and its pension systems in 1682. Discharged soldiers had been statutorily distinct in English law, Elizabethan period. They were exempt from some vagrancy laws, so they wouldn't be punished for begging. It wasn't always routinely applied, but it was there in law. There was also particular statutory requirements that they could claim poor relief from their home parishes, but also they could become maimed pensioners. County pensioner is how you most commonly see this referred to as. And this came under the 1593 Act for Relief of Maimed Soldiers. It's more commonly referred to by historians as the county pensioners. These were pensions awarded at a town or county level, and the decision was made by a local justice of the peace in a court. So you find records of these individuals in sessional materials was paid for by a tax that was levied on the local town, so it was vastly unpopular. Maimed men with physical impairments caused by injury, not necessarily sickness, their widows and their children could claim county pensions. However, the the final pension decision was based on a moral judgment about their character and their religious habits. It was revived repeatedly from 1593 throughout the 1660s and it gained particular prominence during the English Civil War where it was used to pay parliamentarian pensions and at the end of the Civil War the legislation was reversed to only pay royalists. At the Restoration, Charles II had the issue of a large number of former soldiers, many of whom disabled and unwell, and their families and not a lot of money in the English exchequer to pay them. The Maim Soldiers Act was becoming increasingly costly to local communities and it was disliked. It formally lapsed in the 1670s. This an ad hoc system of providing for some disabled men in garrisons and subsidising their food and lodgings developed, but that was not feasible, particularly as Britain continued to be involved in wars. 
Charles II also had personal ambitions to restore the pride of the British monarchy and physically demonstrate his control over the army. And he did that by making the monarchy the centre of army charity. Pensions would be the benevolence of the monarch administered through the army. He was inspired by the activities of Louis XIV, who in Paris had built the palatial Hôtel Royal des Invalides, and if anyone saw the memorial service for the victims of the, the Paris terrorist attack, attack, it took place in Invalide. It's now the Museum d'Armée. And this residential institution could house 4,000 people who lived inside it. At its height, it could house over 7,000 in crisis situations. And Charles wanted one of his own. In fact, he built two. In 1679, he built the Royal Hospital of Kilmainham, which is in Dublin, in Ireland. Sorry, 1679 was Kilmainham. 1682 was the Royal Hospital of Chelsea in London. This is an example of Invalide, just to show you how massive this institution is. It also subsisted out-pensioners, people who were just paid a pension and lived outside of the building. This was the smaller Royal Hospital of Chelsea. It was never designed to be the same scale as Invalide. Charles's um, finances just wouldn't cover it. How he paid for it was by levying a tax on the army. So all soldiers had to pay to build the hospital. It was only ever going to sustain maybe 500 men. And in fact, its numbers were capped in the early 18th century at 474. That instantly leads to the problem that clearly this building is never going to sustain all of the army pensioners that the monarchy wanted to bestow charity on. The hospital still exists. Its residential facilities still exist. And many of you will be familiar with the modern-day Chelsea pensioners with their red coats, and they've recently released an album, and this is a picture of their album cover. The in-pensioners, that are the men who live in the hospital, and they are associated with their red, their red coats and their tri-corner hats as their uniform, and they are invariably shown as being elderly men. In the 19th century, they had a particular sentimentalisation where they're always shown as either looking over religious, religious literature or accounts of battles or at prayer. The 18th century pensioners are shown somewhat differently. <laughs> um, they are usually shown with a pint. And a common theme is an indication of a Navy pensioner and an, in the blue coat from Gre the Royal Hospital of Greenwich and a Chelsea pensioner in the red coat arguing over whose whose battles were best, and making joke of their physical, uh, light of their physical impairments. This continues very frequently, and it coexists with that image of the begging disabled pensioner. So this is a song called Dick Dock, or Lobster and the Crab, where soldier Hannibal is thanking the sailor Dick Dock with his timber toe for being part of a joint naval expedition. Then broach a can before we part, a friendly one with all us heart, as we put the grog about, we'll cheerily see. At land and sea, may Britons fight the world's example and delight and conquer every enemy of George the King. So this is a very reassuring image of military pensioners. So who were Chelsea's objects of charity? And I mentioned there were multiple forms of pension. I've already mentioned the in-pensioners, um, the individuals who lived within the hospital. They, to live in the hospital, they gave up their rights to a pension. And instead, their pension is in the form 
of subsidised food and lodgings and clothing. In pensioners now are not allowed to be married or have dependents. In the 18th and 19th centuries, they could be married, but their wives were not allowed to go with them. And what you find is many in-pensioners smuggling out their food to their wives and families. Out-pensioners were by far the largest group. I've already mentioned it was quite apparent that a hospital which was built for about 500 was never going to manage the army's pensioners. And so from 1703, it was recognised that the out-pension should be the main form of Chelsea pension. It goes from about 1,000 pensioners, around about 1,700, to over 80,000 in the 19th century. It is the army's pension system for NCOs and the other ranks. That's anyone below the rank of commissioned officer. There is also a parallel group called the King's Lettermen, and they're usually just referred to as the Lettermen. These are NCOs who apply to go on a list, and they receive one shilling a day pension. Their numbers are capped at around about 200, and they're usually exclusively for the Guards Regiment and the Senior Regiments. So the decision for a disability or aged pension there is based on rank, not one's actual physical or mental impairment. The Royal Hospital of Chelsea also governs the invalid companies, or the invalid reserves. The invalids are a group of domestic garrison men They can be found in the Channel Islands, England and Scotland, and they run the duties of a domestic garrison, freeing up regular army, fitter men for foreign service. And they do the policing activities, they chase smugglers, they stand sentry, they do town watches, everything you would have expected a normal soldier to do in in those moments. They cannot be sent out of England or Scotland. They also have subsidised medical care, they're allowed to live as soldiers. They are subject to the mutiny acts and the military law, though, so they can be court-martialed and they can't desert. The Royal Hospital of Chelsea also has a small number of widows' pensions. It establishes these in the late 17th century, but they lapse quite quickly, around about 1710. Chelsea collectively refers to its collection of pensioners of the objects of its charity. They refer to them as the deserving objects which, of course, brings a question that they did reject men as undeserving. Until 1806, the Royal Hospital of of Chelsea issues flat-rate pensions only at five pence or nine pence. Most out-pensioners are on on five pence. Nine pence is sergeants, and only a small number of sergeants. 98% are on five pence a day. That gives an annual pension of just over seven pounds. It is equivalent to the top 10% of poor relief payments that were operating under the old and new poor laws. However, it is significantly less than their army pay, and it was fully acknowledged that they wouldn't be able to survive on their pensions. They were expected to undertake work and paid work. There is very little recognition of one's age or the requirements of one's health. The determinant of your pension level is the seniority of your regiment, so whether you're horse guards or a cavalry regiment or a foot soldier, the rank of the person who recommended you, that could influence it. Your health was last. The only cases where that did not apply was if an individual had been suddenly blinded or had contracted a condition called ophthalmasia, which is an eye condition. 
where you again go blind. Or if you are deemed to be mad. And if you are deemed to be mad, the Royal Hospital of Chelsea will pay for your medical care at Bedlam. And then if you are not cured after one year in Bedlam, it will pay for your care in its private madhouse in Hoxton. From 1806 to 1826, there is an experiment known as Wyndham's Act. The Wyndham's Act was designed to encourage enlistment in the regular army at the height of the Napoleonic Wars. It was introduced short-term enlistment, so you could enlist for only a few years. And it also introduced differential pension rates based on one's length of service. It was part of a series of reforms designed to attract a better quality of recruit to the army. And it was seen that a pension offering was a good way of attracting what they regarded as um, more steady, reliable men. What they discovered is that existing pensioners began challenging their flat rate pensions using the Windham scale. And they were saying, well, I had initially been discharged at five pence um, because I lost my lower limb. Over time, the wound has become unstable. I am more disabled than I was before, so I should have a higher rate of pension. This means the act immediately becomes controversial. It's repealed in 1826 because the government and the military authorities become very concerned about the cost, particularly after um, the demobilisation from Waterloo, when they have larger numbers of men coming through onto the pensions. They're also concerned about the moral implications of having an automatic right to a pension. There had never been one before. And what they did was repealed it. And it wasn't until the advent of mass conscription and the Ministry of Pensions in the First World War that an army pension became a right for someone who had been uh, experienced um, ill health or disability in the army. But they did keep the multiple rates that Wyndham's Act introduced. So you get men with different levels of pension. So what sorts of things did people arrive at the hospital with? And it's a dazzling array of injuries. So we tend to think of soldiers as being very, very fit, the, the healthiest men. That is not true of the 18th and 19th century army. Some of the accounts, particularly in the pension file, um, War Office 116, which is available as a microfilm on the Discovery catalogue, gives very in-depth accounts of the early individuals. So Hugh Fry from the first foot guards was very infirm. His left thigh emaciated, hath been sent to ye bath, born at Frome in Somerset, was a labouring man when took on, officer says he got it on duty, and he's admitted to the five pence out pension. William Fox, by a fall from ye wall on sentry, hath involuntary discharge of urine, admitted to out pension. Poor Joseph Holbrook of the first guards, lost his hearing, stabbed in his right knee and thigh, and cut his left hand by ye mob, taking Councillor Lear after his escape. So this is an individual who's been on guard duty. The example of Thomas Quaint demonstrates how scary and new and frightening military service abroad could be. Lost the sight of his left eye, being stung at Cuba in Portugal by a scorpion. Both his legs battered by the triangle of a gun at Gibraltar. He is admitted to an invalid company. He is regarded as not disabled enough to get a pension. Most of these individuals have multiple listings for what has happened to them during their careers. What happens over the 18th century and early 19th 
is as Britain spends more time at war and more pensioners come through, they stop recording information and they start using standardised terms. The most standardised of all of them is worn out. It stands for worn out in the service. It seems to mean over the age of 44. 23% of all admissions use this phrase. Rheumatism was present in 16% of all cases. And as I said, there's still men with multiple issues. The 10th Dragoon Thomas Baker, age 39, demonstrates how flexible definitions could be of health. He's too heavy for a light dragoon. There are other men who are listed as fat, and they are admitted to outpension. All of these individuals were sent by the same officer. So if you're looking for these sort of descriptions, they're in WO116, WO97, which has been digitised by uh, Find My Path, available through the National Archives. Be aware these two files work together, so WO97 is not complete. WO119 is the men of Kilmainham in Ireland. So I'm going to end by talking about disability. I've already mentioned there's quite a fluid definition of disability, and it's wrong to think of Chelsea as just a disability pension system. As I've already mentioned, pensions took no account of age or of the level of physical or mental impairment unless you were blind or you were deemed to be mentally unstable. Mental instability is only at the moment of crisis, so if an individual is in severe delusions, they won't accept a pension application on the basis that there has been madness before. If the individual appears well at that time, they may not pass the pension board. Disability is not medicalised in these records until really the mid-19th century. Starts creeping in in the early 19th. The medical diagnoses given to these men are given by officers. They are in agreement with surgeons, but the person who writes these certificates is writing for a non-medical audience and it's written by an officer. So the invalids. This is a satirical cartoon of one of the invalid companies, and these men are based at Windsor. The cartoon is called The Chelsea Guard, Broken by Toils and Ponderous Arms Oppressed, which is a quote from horror. And the writer is making a comment on the types of men that are being declared fit for service in an invalid garrison in the domestic setting. So in England and Scotland, we have an individual with his guide dog. Uh, This individual has the markers of tuberculosis. That individual has lost the base of his foot. And that is an uh, above-the-elbow amputation, a shoulder amputation. Quite rare because very few people survived it. And the comment is that legally the only thing that could disbar you from invalid service was if you were incontinent infectious or delusional. The physical requirement was the ability to fire over a wall. You could lean on it. And also, walk unaided by another person, but crutches and prosthetic limbs were fine. So this should give us a a different indication of a lot of the popular culture around military and civil relations. Most people in English domestic towns, when they saw the military, would be seeing this sort of man on a regular basis. And this is part of the reason that military service is deeply unpopular. So how did you become and stay a Chelsea pensioner in the 18th and 19th century? Chelsea was very conservative and did not change many of its practices 
over 100 years. So an individual is injured or has, is repeatedly ill over a long period of time until they reach that definition when they are unserviceable. They are then discharged formally by the Articles of War. They're given their money and sent to Chelsea. The officers send letters of recommendation, sometimes with the man but more frequently separate because they feared fraud. You had six months to apply after your discharge unless what they called an unfortunate accident. And that happened quite a lot. It was individuals who fell ill on the road because they were not well enough to travel when they left the army. Once at Chelsea, you would be called for the surgeon's examination. The hospital employed a team of surgeons whose job it was to assess the feasibility of the pension claim and confirm that this is the, was the individual in the letters of recommendation. The men were then sent into a formal cross-examination in front of a justice of the peace and the hospital's officials. The hospital's officials could include the Secretary of War. They were very high-ranking members of the aristocracy. If you read the hospital books, you get an indication that... You get an indication all of they're interested in is the estates and the gardens and the buildings. And the Royal Hospital of Chelsea is a Christopher Wren building. But they start every meeting with the following phrase. Examined and admitted several invalid soldiers to the pension list. Several could mean up to 300 in a day. Officials would make their decision whether they were going to award a pension, which one, whether they would ask the man if he wanted to go into invalid service, and some men did want to because it was subsidised housing and medical care, or they would reject them and send them back to their regiment. The decision was then formalised by swearing an oath in front of the Justice of the Peace. So it mirrors the recruitment process for the army. And that is where the, the idea it's illegal to impersonate a Chelsea pensioner comes from. It's not to do with the uniform. It's to do with the fact you are legally claiming a pension from the state. And so if you are not eligible, it was fraud to claim the pension. The hospital then sent you out and you returned home or you went to your garrison. Every six months, you would have to send a signed affidavit, which you would have to pay for, signed by the local church warden and local justices of the peace to confirm you were still alive and still physically, or physically impaired or had mobility issues. The hospital retained the right at all times to recall you for an examination. Sometimes they did this if they suspected an issue with the affidavits you were sending. Occasionally, this was because the War Office became concerned about the cost of pensions and they ordered what they called a mass re-examination or a general re-exam. And this is when men would be ordered back to London to be examined again, irrespective of where they lived. So you do have individuals who live in colonial America and they are not able to claim their pension or claim any arrears due to them until they've appeared in London and they have to finance the journey themselves. So I'm going to, to introduce you to Thomas Jackson. And he had a lower leg amputation. He was ill many times, but he was eventually pensioned on account of the loss of a limb. Being seen about, again, on crutches, and getting well, it seemed I was thought I'd become a nuisance on the master roll and must be got rid of. Being useless, I was, of course, no longer worthy to eat the king's beef. I was asked my age and time of service, and one of the gentlemen called out, seven, but the doctor immediately said, nine. 
as I had a wound in my knee. They evidently meaning I should have a nine pence a day pension for life. And that was what was settled on me. Jackson, in his religious autobiography, is extremely angry about what happened to him at Chelsea. He felt he had no right of reply and no ability to answer back, and he didn't. The hospital could be punitive and could order re-examinations of individuals who questioned them. That's not to say they weren't uh, accommodating of their pensioners' needs. There is accounts in the surgeons' journals that men were given free bandages and free medicine, which was not officially sanctioned. They could be given wooden limbs, an expensive item um, for a working-class man. They quite frequently challenged their pension decisions by approaching members of the hospital in person and asking them to petition the hospital on their behalf. And that strategy worked quite frequently. So how they paid. Between 1682, the foundation of the hospital, and 1754, they're paid retrospectively. You need to be on the books for at least a year before you're eligible for a pension payment. And as I've said, they're coming out of the army at the moment where they probably need money most. It's usually two years. The early hospital could go up to seven before it paid. And this sent the men to moneylenders. And the early 18th century, the Chelsea outpensioners are heavily associated with debt. From 1704, the law changed. And the government decided it was better to pay them six months in advance through the excise officials. The excise service was the most well-organised and efficient branch of government in the British Isles. If the men lived in Ireland, they were paid through postmasters. Men would appear with their certificates and their affidavits to their excise officer in the local county town on an appointed day. They would be questioned again to ensure their identity then the pension would be paid. Excise officers were expected to recognise all of the men in their area who would be claiming a pension and make inquiries about those they didn't see. From the 1830s, the army gets more heavily involved in the payment of pensions and they start sending army officers out with excise officials. The army officers eventually overtook the excise officials in this role. From 1842, pensions were paid on army registration districts so the same recruitment districts the armies used, they also used for pensioning purposes. In the 1830s, the pension also switches to being paid quarterly, so once every six months, still in advance. This is, um, in the 19th century, you've got the multiple rates. So up to 1806 flat rates. After 1806, they can vary um, with accommodation of the rank of the man and health and the seniority of their regiment. Men could challenge it, and what you tend to find is they start challenging after every eight years to try and get a higher reward of pension. There are multiple sources to help you find individuals who live outside of Britain and Ireland who become pensioners. This includes some people who migrated to different areas of the British Empire and colonial troops. This is only available from the 1830s onwards. Possibly the best source is the King's German Legion. In the 1820s and 30s, again, the hospital was worried about the cost of pensions, in addition to this moral concern about the health of the army and the desirability of having an automatic right to a pension. That didn't go away when Winding's Act was repealed. So in 1834, the army sent investigators over to Germany to question pensioners and interrogate Hanoverian and Prussian troops who had Chelsea pensions. 
So there's an excellent resource on where they are living in Germany. In Australia, the work of Christine Wrightson in particular has shown large numbers of Chelsea pensioners went and lived in Australia and became uh, colonial settlers or worked in the penal communities. The British India records are particularly well-developed and they're particularly strong if you go through the British East India Company records, which are available through the British Library. For black British soldiers, there is a file of what were... It's, it's unfortunately called the Negro Register, and it records Caribbean troops who were mobilised during the French Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars and received a pension. What is interesting for that file is there is no difference in the pension rates they use. Considering the huge amounts of prejudice and racism of the time, that is an unusual situation. I'm going to quickly end by talking about fraud. The descriptions I showed you earlier should not be viewed as the reason or the sole reason that individual got a pension. There is a lot of other things going on behind the scenes, such as which officer recommended you, who spoke on your behalf, which surgeon examined you. So when you see those descriptions, and particularly of disabilities, think about what they mean by the term, but also the fact there are these other processes going on that we can't see anymore. The descriptions are also identity documents. Chelsea pensioners were expected to carry their certificates at all times, and they could be openly challenged by members of the public to prove they were a Chelsea pensioner. This becomes a particular issue at the end of the Napoleonic Wars when soldiers start reporting that because they are, have been invalided according to military definitions of disability, they do not correspond to civilian definitions of disability and they are being challenged about their rights. Officers also try and reward ex their most experienced and longest-serving men through pensions. So you get a lot of quite vague definitions of pension reasons, such as worn out, aged, infirm. I've already mentioned that over the course of the late 18th and early 19th century, concerns about cost and long-distance applications and large numbers of men claiming pensions made army authorities very concerned about fraud. They ordered mass re-examinations and routinely struck thousands off the list, only to reinstate many of them later. In the 1830s, the, hospital, the war office became so distrustful of the hospital's decision-making that it assumed ultimate authority over the hospital's decisions. Hospital decisions were now made more within the war office, not by distinctly appointed hospital staff, as had been in the 17th and 18th century. That continued as a war office function from the 1830s until the advent of the Ministry of Pensions, uh, in the early 20th century. So the hospital, while it exists as an independent entity, from the 1830s, most of their decision-making processes are under the War Office and its particular views of health. So I'm going to finish there so we have time for questions. I hope you've all enjoyed the talk. It's been lovely all getting the opportunity to speak to you. And thank you, Emily. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.